going to be in Luke chapter 15. I'm going to go ahead and get your Bible out. Let's remember where we have been over the last four sessions. Anybody remember where we started on, on night number one? You remember what the theme was? What did we say? You're going to have, yeah, there's a new name. Waiting for those who overcome, which has more to do with character than it does with what you're doing. In, in other words, it's a heart issue. God has a dream for your life. And then we, the next morning, yesterday morning, I think, if, um, if I'm not confused, it might be, we, then what did we talk about? Where did we go? Talked about how we relate to God. Do you remember? This theme of lordship, that he is king. And so I wish we would have had, I wish, I wish we had 10 sessions and we talked about how we relate to God as father, as friend. We chose to talk about how we relate to him as king. We don't have unlimited sessions. And then last night, we kind of turned the corner. And so now we're going to talk about how we relate to those within the body of Christ, within our community, especially in our high alpha group. And many of you made a pledge last night that in the next two weeks that you would do something of a sacrificial nature to show your love for a member of your Chi Alpha group. You would find a need and meet it. We're going to be aware of the water and the towel in the room. Remember? We're going to share our possessions and we're going to see the Lord command the blessing there. And so I told you tonight we're going to turn then outward, think about those that Jesus loved so much he died for on our campus and around the world. And so we'll start in Luke chapter 15. You can read along with me the first six verses. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. That's Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. Lord, we open our hearts to you again tonight. And again, we're studying your wonderful scripture, which is a revelation of your heart. We know our own propensity, Lord, to not allow your word to seep beyond our head, deep into our heart. So we actually do open our hearts to you. And Holy Spirit, we ask you for a download, for a revelation of who you are and what you're really like, so that we can respond properly. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Everybody say amen. amen. You guys, oh, you're so amazing. You're awesome. Sad this is our last night together. And uh, excited at the same time for what the Holy Spirit wants to do tonight. It's going to be awesome. I'm, I'm thinking about a uh, student who came to San Houston State many years ago. His name was Jeff, and he came out of San Antonio, Texas, out of a very rough part of San Antonio, Texas. Um, he grew up in the hood there, and his family uh, was a very rough family. His, 
siblings spent time in prison, uh, drugs, drug selling, that sort of stuff, gangs, gang-related activity. Uh, but Jeff, you know, he wanted something better for his life. He actually ended up getting a scholarship to come to St. Houston State, and so um, kind of pagan background, not a Christian home coming up, but he got to St. Houston State, and he met these guys from Chi Alpha, and he didn't really like them because they were goodies. You know what a goodie is? They like didn't, they didn't do the stuff that he wanted to do, uh, partying, etc. But he didn't really have any other friends, and um, he wanted to play intramurals. And they offered to be his team, and so he said, okay, I'll hang out with you, even though I don't really like you. He didn't say it out loud, but that's what he was thinking. And so they, they do this, like, soccer intramural thing, and um, they're out, you know, on the, on the, on the football field, I'll say it that way, and they're playing soccer, and these, these Kayapa guys are like, um, you know, their, their identity is not really wrapped up in whether they win or lose. So, in other words, they don't really care. <laughs> But Jeff is like super competitive, and they're, they're playing this social fraternity, and these, these frat guys are just smoking the Kyle guys. I mean, it's like, it's bad. It's like kind of shameful, you know what I'm saying? And Jeff is getting really perturbed because he knows the Kyle guys aren't trying hard enough, and so at some point, he like loses his cool altogether and begins to curse is small group leader. He wouldn't have called him a small group leader. He's just a friend, you know, but it was the small group leader, David. He just began to cuss him out in front of hundreds of other students watching this game. I mean, you bleep, 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 don't bleep, bleep, you bleep, 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 just screaming and marches off the field in front of like hundreds of people. And David, the small group leader, is like, oh man, what just happened, right? Well, Jeff goes home that night and uh, he's not a Christian, but he does have a conscience. And so he starts to feel a little bit guilty, and he's thinking the next morning when he wakes up, he's thinking, you know, these guy over guys, they're, they're, they're nice to me, they're, you know, they're being my friends here, and I, I shouldn't have done that, I shouldn't have lost my cool. So he actually decides to go apologize to him. So he goes over to where uh, a number of these guys live in this, in this kind of house across the street from campus, and it's, you know, it's like five guys, five guy over guys that uh, live in this old house um, in one of those neighborhoods across the street from campus, and the door's always open, so he walks in, and nobody's there. It's like 10 o'clock in the morning, most everybody's in class. So, but he hears a voice that he thinks is David coming from the back where, where David's room is. So he walks down the hall and he's looking, but he doesn't see anybody. And he walks into David's room and he hears David's voice, but he doesn't see David. And what happened is these Kayapa guys had all taken their closets in these old homes that had like walk-in closets and they'd actually literally made them prayer closets. You know, Jesus said, go into your closet and shut the door and pray to your father in an unseen way. And so these guys have made prayer rooms out of these big old closets and these old houses. And so Jeff goes in and he actually hears David praying for him. And he sits down on the foot of the bed and he listens for the next five to ten minutes as David is calling out for Jeff's soul at the throne. David finally comes out and Jeff is looking at him like, what were you just doing? <laughs> David says, I was praying for you. And he explains that. And Jeff's question is why? Why would you do that? 
and especially after I treated you like that, why would you do that? Why would you love me? Why would you care for me? Why would you intercede for me? Why would you put up with me? Why, why would you do that? And that's actually what's going on in the story that we just read from the life of Jesus. If you go back to Luke 14, you find that Jesus is preaching, and he's preaching some pretty hard terms of discipleship, and it's weird because it's kind of like the harder Jesus preached, the more irreligious people were drawn to him, and religious people were repelled by him. It's like the sinners and the tax collectors and the outcasts, they keep coming to Jesus, and the religious people are backing up, and then they begin to kind of hurl their insults at Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, why do you love people like that? Why do you love sinners? Why would you, why would you invite tax collectors into your life? Why would you go into their life? Why would you go into their home? Why would you share a meal with them? Hey, Jesus, why would you allow a sinful woman, a prostitute, to wash your feet with her tears and dry them with their hair. Jesus, why are you, you know what they called him? A friend of sinners. Now that was a term of derision to them, but to us, that's a term of endearment, right? Because if he hadn't been a friend of sinners, he wouldn't have been a friend of me. But hey, Jesus, why do you do this? To finish the story from before, David, small group leader, ended up becoming a missionary, and Jeff became a youth pastor, which is pretty cool. So maybe you knew by knew the Bible, and you, you might ask the same question. You might ask your Kayaka pastor, hey, why, why are we always talking about outreaches on campus? Why, why are we always talking about small groups and buying feed and fight for the lost lands of God? Why? Why are we always talking about missions and the heart of God for the nations? Why are we always talking about going on a trip around the world to share the gospel? Why? Why missions? Jesus, why do you do what you do? Jesus is always actually answering this question if you know his life. You know, one time at Matthew's house, he said, he was, at, he was basically accused in the same way and answered the same question. That time he said it this way, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That's why I came. Jesus, why? Well, at Zacchaeus' house, he said it this way in Luke chapter 19. The Son of Man came to seek and save what was lost. This time, he answers that same question. Jesus, why do you love sinners so much? By telling the story. And here he says, because I'm like a shepherd with a hundred sheep, and even if just one wanders away, I cannot rest until I find it. So what we actually have in this parable is actually the answer of Jesus to this question, why? What we have is an explanation of the heart and actions of Jesus in loving, welcoming, befriending, and pursuing the unreached, the lost. Be simple tonight, and then we're going to pray. Let me, give you two, let me give you two reasons. Jesus would give two reasons why he did what he did. The first one 
Jesus, why are you a friend of sinners? He would say, because God suffers when one is lost. Because God suffers. Have you ever lost something valuable to you? Like, I don't know, for example, a dorm room key? <laughs> kind of ridiculous what they charge, isn't it? It's a convenience fee. That's not a material fee. Lose your cell phone. You got a friend? Everybody's got one of those friends that's always forgetting their cell phone, right? Thank God for find my iPhone. Car key. Three hundred dollars with a computer chip now. Ridiculous. And sometimes it's not like a material thing. Sometimes it's something that's just kind of like a sentimental thing. If you know the progression of Luke 15, the second parable is about a woman who lost a coin. It wasn't really the value of the coin, like monetarily, it was more of a sentimental thing. And I, I don't know, you lose something sentimental to you. This is actually my third wedding ring. First wife, third ring. So I lost the first two. Thank God she didn't lose her, because hers was two months' salary. This is like 60 bucks of James Avery. But it's the sentimental value. Or, you know, it could be something, you know, more even dear than a, a, a ring. What if, like, anybody ever lose a, a pet? You know, that's like, that's sad. Unless, of course, it's a cat, then nobody cares. <laughs> between a cat and a dog. A dog wants to be a human, a cat wants to be God. That's the difference. <laughs> they need that old lesson, God is God, you are not. <laughs> it actually is sad to lose a pet. I, when I think about losing something valuable or precious, I, I think about the day that um, momentarily we lost our youngest child, Corey. It, it has a happy ending. We, we found her, but for... We were actually teaching on a university campus in a different state, and um, in the middle of the class that I was teaching, Mary had actually come through the back door, interrupted the class with a look of despair on her face that I'd never seen before, and she, she kind of squeaked out, I, I, we've lost Corey. Corey at that time was somewhere between two and three years of age, and Mary was actually making some old school like photocopies for, for my class, and had turned around just for a second, and if you've ever been in a situation where you've had a little sister or a little brother that kind of wanders away, it's, it happens so fast. And so she, she just real quick turned around, and then she turned back around, and Corey was gone. And they had already, at the, at the point that she interrupted class, it had been about 15 minutes, and immediately, of course, the class is dismissed, and all of us, we go into search and rescue mode, you know what I'm saying? And we're in this building on this college campus, it's unfamiliar, it's like three stories, and so we start on the first floor and we're looking everywhere. We're looking in every room, we're looking in every cabinet, we're looking, and you know, we're looking on the bookshelves, you know what I'm saying? We're like trying to find my little lamb. And the worst thing about this is the clock is ticking. And you go from the first floor to the second floor to the third floor and you can't find her. And in 30 minutes, or 45 minutes, I think it was, we get the University Police Department in. 
And then in an hour, we get the, the, the city police department in. And the whole time, like, your mind is racing because you're thinking, if some creep got my little girl and got on the interstate in a vehicle, they're, they're, in, a, they're in a different city by now, you know what I'm saying? At an hour and 15 minutes, we found her. And I won't tell you the whole story, but I'll just tell you that she had walked out of that building that we were in and walked across two parking lots. Remember, she's only two or three. And had gained access to the dormitory that we were staying in. You had to have key access to even get in. So I think somebody, somebody obviously let her in. And when we found her, she was actually sitting in one of the dorm rooms with some friends of ours, children who were the same age, and she's sitting cross-legged on the floor, playing Barbie and Hot Wheels and eating goldfish. <laughs> she just had a party. <laughs> and so we, you know, we scoop her up in our arms and almost squeeze the life out of her with our happy hugs, and she's looking at us like, what is going on? Because she had no idea she was even lost, you know? Like, she had no idea of the precarious position she placed herself in when she wandered away from her mom and dad's care. And you know that to be true. You're ministering on a college campus, and that's what they do. They play Hot Wheels and Barbie, and they eat goldfish, right? And they have no idea they're even lost. But the bigger point I want to make to you is this. I want to ask you this question. Who suffered most during that hour and 15 minutes? The little lamb who had wandered away from mom and dad or mom and dad? Jesus is asked, why do you love sinners? Why do you welcome people like that? Why are you always reaching out to people like that? And Jesus would say, because God's heart is broken. Because he's a father. And he alone carries the weight of eternity. Even when people don't know that they're lost, God's heart is broken. When I try to Imagine, in futility, what God must feel. And I try to, you know, extrapolate what I felt for that hour and 15 minutes, and I try to somehow feel God's heart, not just for an hour and 15 minutes, but for thousands of years now. Not one little lamb, but billions of people on this planet and I try to imagine how God must suffer with his broken heart. You see, what this parable is really about is not so much about the lamb, but about the shepherd. And if you know the, if you know the chapter, which I think is one of the most beautiful chapters in all the Bible, the second parable is not really about the coin, it's about the woman who lost the coin. And the third parable, the most famous we call it the parable of the prodigal, but it's not really about the prodigal son. It's actually a parable about the father's heart. 
See, so in other words, if we were going to make a movie about any one of these parables, the main character is the shepherd, not the lost lamb. The lost lamb is a supporting character. The main character is the shepherd. Does that make sense? You track it? So, when Jesus is asked why, he doesn't immediately go to the value of the lamb, although the value of the lamb is priceless. That's why the shepherd goes after the lamb, but he goes back to the heart of God. I do this because God suffers. How many of you had a curfew in high school? Some of you think I still got a curfew in my mind. You're tracking me on my phone. That's <laughs> true. I, I remember in high school, my senior year, going to going to my mom and saying, Mom, this is embarrassing. I'm, I'm 18 years old, and i got to be home at 8.30. This is, like, wrong. Please, like, can we bump it up to midnight or something like that? Actually, you know what I did first is I, I started with my dad. I went to dad, and I said, please. And dad always says, go talk to mom, right? And so I went to talk to mom. And then mom always says something like this. You, your mom probably said something like this. Mom always says something like, you don't understand, son. I can't sleep until you're home. You ever heard that? That's a heart of a mom. You know the heart of God? will never rest and never slumber. God won't rest until his lost lambs are back home, safe and sound. So really, we say, Jesus, not only why do you befriend sinners, but why did you leave heaven and come to earth? In the broadest picture, why did you why did you come? And he would say, because God suffers. Like any father, he can't rest until his children are home. Because God's heart is broken. He carries the weight of eternity. He knows the consequences of being forever lost. And God grieves deeply over the lostness of every man, woman, and child on this planet. And on your kings. And 2,000 years later, the Great Commission remains unfulfilled. More than 3 billion people making up almost 7,000 unreached people groups on this planet are lost. If you know the missiological terminology, half of those are completely unengaged. That means there's no missionaries, no local churches, no gospel access. They don't even know that they're lost. But we don't even have to go that far. We can look on our own campus and see that people are lost. And God's heart breaks over that. And that's why we're going to do what we do. That's why Jesus did what he did. Can, I don't know if you've had this experience. You're, many of you are so young. Maybe you haven't. But one of the worst things in all of life, one of the worst experiences in all of life, is to sit by somebody that you really love who is suffering and wish you could do something for them. If you've never had that experience of sitting by a hospital bed and holding somebody's hand and wishing you could trade places with them, Seeing somebody in pain, either emotionally or otherwise, physically, and wishing that you could do something to alleviate that suffering, to alleviate that pain, and just wishing that you could do something. Well, that's one of the worst things in all of life. But what if there was something you could do for God? Well, there is, because I told you there were two things that motivated Jesus 
The why behind Jesus go back to two motives. One, because God suffers when one is lost. But how many understand this? That God rejoices when one is found. Jesus, why do you do what you do? Not only God suffers when one is lost, but God rejoices when one comes home. We didn't read the scriptures, but down in verse 7, Jesus said there is rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents. And he says it again in verse 10, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. But So, 31 years ago, at the University of the Pacific in Stockton, California, when that red-headed, freckle-faced kid, yep, that's me, gave his life to Jesus, are, are you saying that the angels in heaven rejoiced and threw a party over that one kid? That's what we're saying. And that's what happened when you gave your heart to Jesus. Yeah, that's a big deal. I, I read Revelation again recently, and I'm, I'm I'm thinking like, are the angels bored or something? Like, <laughs> like why are they freaking out over one sinner who comes home? Like, really think with me for a second. When you read the book of Revelation. You, you find out that the angels, they, they can be aware of what's going on here, but they're way more focused intently on the throne. What they're really looking at is what the theologians call, in Hebrew, the panim, the, the presence or the countenance, the face of God. So what happens to the countenance of God, on the face of God, that makes all of heaven throw a party when one sinner comes home. I can't prove this, but I think every time somebody gives their heart to Jesus, that God smiles. And those angels who are looking at the Holy One, when they see that smile on the face of God, they lose it again and they start rejoicing. That's what I think. My daughter was actually 13 um, years old when she led her first friend to Jesus. She was on, my daughter was on the swim team. She had another girl on the swim team in our community. And she had brought her to church. Now, the friend, would, her parents were going through a really nasty, nasty divorce. The kind of thing, you know, no kid ought to, to, to be a witness to. And so her heart was broken. And my daughter, friendship, brought her to church that night, this particular night, that she gave her heart to the Lord, the, the youth pastor preached a message that there was just no way he could have known what was going on in this little girl's heart. It, it was just prophecy straight up. You know, the Holy Spirit anointed him, and the youth pastor spoke a message that was so pertinent to where she was at, the, the little girl actually got up and ran out of the room crying. If anybody ever runs out of your Kayapa meeting, it doesn't necessarily mean they hate you. <laughs> Sometimes it's just the presence of God, like, working on their heart. And it's freaky if you've never experienced it, right? And so she, she ran out of the room. My daughter got up and followed her, you know, like a, a good little small group leader would do. And went actually into the women's room. And there, you know, heard her story, counseled her, and led her to Jesus. So when my daughter got home, she had obviously been crying. And like a dumb dad, you know, I just assumed it was some sort of like, you know, teenage queen bee youth group thing going on, you know, drama. And she said, no, daddy. And she told me the story. 
And, you know, of course, I rejoiced with the angels over what had happened, but then she said something to me that was fantastic. She was 13 years old. She said, Daddy, now I know why we're missionaries. I said, go on. (laughs) She said, because now I know what it feels like to bring one of God's kids back home. And there's nothing like it in the whole world, Daddy. Got it, baby. There was a, a small group in San Diego that kind of got a hold of this that God's heart suffers and is broken. And, and they said, we, we must, we must, we must win somebody to the Lord. We, we, we're not content with it just being me and mine and, and, and looking inward. We've got to look outward and find a lost land for Jesus. So they, they met somebody, it was another intramural story. They started, they met this kid who was totally lost and he. You know, he wanted to play in a so they said, we'll be your team, you be our coach. And these guys were gamers. They were straight-up gamers. They weren't athletes, all right? I'm embarrassed to say this, but they had, they had more muscles in their thumbs than their thighs, that kind of guy. And, you know, they, they weren't active, athletic, you know what I'm saying? But this guy wanted to play soccer, soccer again. And so he's, he's like a coach. So he starts getting these guys up at, like, 6 a.m., and they're running three to five miles, you know, three or five times a week. He's going to whip these guys into shape. And so this whole small group, they're like jogging around the campus, and they're huffing and they're puffing, and they're reminding themselves that this is worth it, because God suffers when one is lost. <laughs> and God rejoices when one is found. You know, they're gone. I've been traveling a lot during that season, so I didn't get to go to any of the games, and at the end of the semester, I asked the small group leaders, and JT Billings, I asked, I asked JT, I said, hey, how'd, how'd your soccer team do? And he, he laughed, you know, with a kind of twinkle in his eye. He said, we lost every game. <laughs> but we won Tyler Hopkins' heart for Jesus. <laughs> what if there was something that you and I could do to put a smile on the face of God? C.S. Lewis wrestles with this concept that's deep theologically. I know I'm treading some deep waters here, but he wrestles with this idea. He's wrestling with it. Is it possible, could it be possible that you and I could somehow be an ingredient in the divine contentment? In other words, what if there was something we could do to put a smile on the face of God? Well, I believe there is something we can do. Every time we bring one of his lost lambs home, we put a smile on the world. Why do we do this? Why do we do it? You see, most of the time, preachers will tell you this. It's all about the lamb. And boy, we, we do this like we, we preach it. If you're a good preacher, you paint this picture of the lamb that's like walked away from the fold and found itself in like dangerous desert territory, you know, and you paint a picture of, you know, the era of kind of deserts and, and the sun goes down and it gets cold and this little lamb is like lost and and now there's a salivating wolf that's looking at it, and it lands on a like rotten precipice, and you know, if you're really good preaching, make sound effects like ah, 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 ah. No, that's Pity. Right. We're trying to evoke pity. Right. 
and has a motive, pity will only carry you so far. Other times we're, we're trying to lay on you a duty, and duty will only carry you so far. But there is a motive that will carry you all the way into the wilderness and all the way back again with that lamb on your shoulders, and that's the motive called love. The scripture says, Paul says, Christ's love compels us. Because we're convinced that one died for all. And that's our Chi Alpha namesake, honestly. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. It's the love that we have first for God. And then for his lost lambs. That's the thing. So the question becomes, do we know God well enough to hear the cry of his heart? And do we love him enough to want to put a smile on his face? You see, people will do for love what they do for no other reason. I was, uh, I'm going to tell you a story that's super cheesy, but it's so true. i got to tell you. I was in West Texas a number of years ago. Contextually, let me just tell you, it's a season of my life when I was wrestling with some of these ideas and my own calling, my own future. If I'm just really honest, I was aging even then, a long time ago, and still am. And wondering if university ministry was still my place. Just wrestling with this theme. I was driving through the middle of the night because I preached at Angelo State, Kayapa, and then I had to be in Phoenix, Arizona the very next morning, and there was no flight, there was no way I had to drive, there was no way around, I had to drive all night. And anybody been in West Texas? It's kind of brutal, I'm sorry, like live there or something. Um, it's got its own beauty, but in the middle of the night, in the middle of nowhere, um, I'm doing everything I can because I'm alone, I'm trying to stay awake, I'm trying to fall asleep, so I'm eating sunflower seeds, I'm like, you know, drink the coffee if I can find it, which was rare. And I, I've got the windows down, and I'm, I'm listening to music just to stay awake. And don't judge me, okay? Don't judge me right here. I, I was actually listening to secular music because that's all there was. It's West Texas. You ever been in a situation where it's like 97.2 and you put scan and it goes zip 97.2? <laughs> that's what it was, alright? Don't judge me. And it's West Texas, so it's like country western music. Of your haters. This song came on by a guy named Tim McGraw. The song was called Just to See You Smile. It's like classic, right? And, and you know, it's an innocuous love song. He's, you know, I don't know, it's like country music. Hey, baby, I love you. No, I, I do anything just to see you smile, baby. That's what and he's like, I, I moved to a different town, I changed jobs, because just to see you smile. And the chorus comes around, and, and he says it this way, just to see you smile, I'd do anything you want me to. I'll never count the cost. It's worth all that's lost, just to see you smile. And the cheesy part is this, the cheesy part is this, that 
at 3 a.m. in the middle of West Texas somewhere, this, this redheaded preacher was driving with the windows down, singing the song at the top of my lungs with tears streaming down my face. Not because, I, as much as I love Mary, I wasn't even thinking about Mary right then. I was thinking about Jesus. I'm singing it to Jesus, right? Jesus, just seeing you smile. I do anything you want me to. I'll never count the cost. It's worth all that's lost just to see you smile. Just to see you smile. Do you love him enough to hear the cry of his heart over the brokenness for your campus? Do you love him enough to do anything to bring a lost lamb home? It's not, it's not going to be easy. Did you, catch, did you catch the story? Jesus said, when the shepherd found the lamb, what did he do? Well, joyfully, that's important because, you know, when I'm like running after a dog that's run away from me or something and I find the dog, I'm not always joyful, right? <laughs> but Jesus is not like me. He's the good shepherd. <laughs> and that's a big deal. He joyfully. He joyfully. That's a big deal. The Bible didn't say how far the shepherd had to go. But how many understand it? It, it wasn't a little John. It, he, he went off some way. The implication is he went a long distance. And now, he's got to go back that distance, but this time he's got to, he's got to carry that lost lamb. You, you know what a sheep weighs? I, some of you are act people, but I wasn't. And so, you, you know a sheep actually weighs 150 to 200 pounds. You know, in my younger years, I'd ask for a 150-pound volunteer, and I'd try to carry you around a couple of times. You know how far I'd get before I'd start talking to puppy, right? We call that the burden of restoration. But there's, you, you can't go far enough that Jesus won't joyfully put you on his shoulders and carry you home. And some of you, maybe you sat through the whole conference and you're finally identifying with this picture. You, you actually are that lost lamb. And you know, you really are in a desert. And it really does feel dark. And you really do feel alone. And you're, you're, you're starting to see that there, there actually really are wolves. And, and you don't know where to go. Well, can I tell you that there is a shepherd, there is a savior who has come for you. And he will joyfully carry you on his shoulders back home. All the way to heaven in that new name that we talked about two nights ago. But for some of you, you're Christians. And you've never had the joy or the privilege of learning the lesson of what it feels like to participate in the search and rescue mission of Jesus. Can I tell you, that day when I lost my little lamb, that hour and 15 minutes, remember? Can I just tell you, it would be unthinkable to me that somebody could have been in that classroom and called themselves my friend and sat idly by and not joined in the search and rescue mission. It's un unthinkable, impossible, that we can say we love God and not lost, not love the lost lambs of God. We've got to join in the search and rescue mission and be a part of it. Let's stand together. The worship team's going to come back and prepare to help us.
Some of you um, are familiar with the story in Acts chapter 1 of the ascension of Jesus Christ. Forty days after his resurrection, he's gathered together with his disciples on the Mount of Olives. And he's giving them some of his last words. And they were asking, you know, when are you going to restore the kingdom? Many, many of you are familiar with this passage. For time's sake, I'll just jump into verse 7. He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. And if you remember that, for that, they're, they're standing there, two angels show up and say, what are you doing? Why are you looking up into the clouds? Jesus is coming back, so get to work. Of course, the get to work part was also to wait for the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Of course, he also told them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. You're going to baptize people. You're going to teach people. And I'm going to be with you. I'm trying to, in my mind's eye, imagine that ascension. We don't, we don't talk a lot about ascension in the church for some reason. But what a cool, what a cool moment. After Jesus has risen, and the disciples are with him. So we're up on a mountaintop now, just kind of in your mind's eye, imagine with me. We're up on a mountaintop, and Peter's there, the, the, the man of rock that we talked about. James and John are there, the sons of thunder, the one in whom there was no guile in. Nathaniel was there. Andrew was there. They're, they're all there, but it's kind of hard to even pay attention to them because they're all looking at the one in the center, who is Jesus. talking to them about what to expect in the days to come. And then suddenly, as their hearts are burning, looking into his face, they, they see he's getting a little taller. And then a little taller. And then they look down and they realize that his feet are no longer on the ground. But he's actually levitating. He's ascending. And they, they look, you know, with their eyes bulging and their jaw dropped and their their hearts burning as Jesus just begins to ascend to heaven. And then we read it in verse 9. It said, then a cloud came, not a rain cloud, but a glory cloud, came and hid him from their sight. Man, that would have been cool to see, right? He says, you guys are going to receive power, but wait. And they're standing there, and the angels come and say, hey, the same Jesus is going to come back, so go wait. And they go back into the city and wait. Have you ever thought about what happened on the other side of that cloud? Like on the Jesus side of the cloud. It tells us what happened here, but what happened up there when Jesus went back home to heaven? Think about that. Like he's been gone for a long time now, 33 years, right? And I'm thinking about the angels that are longing to see the face of the one that they love most, who's been 
gone down on mission for God. And so in my mind's eye, I see the angels, like a sea of angels crowding around the streets of heaven as Jesus comes in. And they don't know whether to shout, they don't know whether to hush, because as he gets closer, they see that he's got scars in his hands, scars on his brow. And then you hear angel footsteps kind of shuffle, 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 and the sea of angels parts because Father God is running to welcome his boy home. Come on, y'all. If the father of Luke 15 would run to welcome the disobedient son home, how much more is the true father in heaven going to run to welcome the obedient, suffering, victorious son home? And I just in my mind's eye, I see him with the biggest hug you've ever seen, hugging his son, kissing the scars in his hand, the scars in his brow, and welcoming home. And then the angels, you know, they just erupt in praise and glory. Worthy, worthy is the lamb who was slain from the foundation of the earth, the victorious one. After all, partying settles down. Total speculation here. I'm just using my God-given imagination, okay? I'm imagining Jesus, maybe next day, walking with his old friend, the angel Gabriel. They're just walking and talking. And Gabriel's like, wow, Jesus. We all held our breath. That old cross thing, man, we didn't know. But when that stone rolled away, you should have heard the shout. Like, you know, win by losing, live by dying. That won't be, we didn't see that coming. So, wow. And Gabriel says, Jesus, you died for the whole world? Jesus said, yeah, of course. And Gabriel says, does the whole world know that you died for them? Jesus 
looks at his old friend and says, Gabriel, there is no plan B. They're going to do it. In a few days, the Holy Ghost is going to fall. And my people are going to be filled with power to be my witnesses. And 2,000 years later, heaven's still waiting for the church to be the church and to get in the rescue mission. Where do you want to be a part of it? Want to be a part of it? God, you see our hands. Start giving us names now. Start giving us names now. 